This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 16th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Competitive debate as practiced in high schools and universities is supposed to center on presentations of evidence and arguments. And for young people, it's a tremendous exercise in thinking clearly and convincingly articulating a point of view. But debate has changed, and not for the better. That from James Fishback, the founder of Incubate Debate. He argues that young people are facing more problems than merely getting their facts straight. We spoke last week. I didn't do debate in high school. I did forensics, but mostly it was like storytelling and humorous interpretation and that sort of thing. And I would see debaters pulling in their home assembled filing cabinets into rooms to sit and study and try to prepare certain arguments for a debate. What is a round of debate? What does it look like for debaters? Usually it's students coming together on a Saturday morning, goes all day. There's a topic that's been given to them beforehand, and they get assigned a side in some events. They choose their own side in other events. And they have a competition of ideas on which side of the debate ought to win. They bring in evidence, bring in expert analysis, bring in powerful rhetoric, cross-examination. They scrutinize each other's ideas. That's the debate. It's not all too dissimilar to storytelling in the sense that you have a story that you're trying to tell about a particular topic, be it open borders, the expansion of NATO, or electric vehicles. All debate is in a sense competitive because you're aiming to win over an audience to your side of a question. It's worth noting that when debaters are told what side they have to choose, it might not be the side they agree with. It might be, uh, well, I don't I don't agree with this, but I'm going to give this argument, this claim, the best presentation that I can, and I'm going to use the strongest evidence that I believe argues in favor of that argument. It's sort of a Turing test, right? We have these ideological Turing tests where people can try to convince you that they understand an argument so fully that they can make a claim for a side of the debate that they don't agree with and still convince you that their argument that they're presenting is correct. And so, like I said, I was intimidated by seeing debaters do what they do and didn't want to tangle with them. I've also seen evolutions in how debate is done. At at one point in either high school or college, I became aware of debating tactics that were like a Gatling gun of speed, of how many points can you make within a certain amount of time. And it seems so utterly alien to a normal audience that might be consuming a discussion about some topic that debate came to be sort of its own thing that was that was sort of alien to how you and I might uh, hash out an idea or a question. And you've written about a different sort of evolution that has occurred within debate. Describe that. If anything, it's been a a devolution. What's happened to high school debate over the last couple of years, it's become less and less about a competition of ideas, and it looks more and more like an echo chamber. This manifests in a number of different ways, Caleb, but the one way that I talk about in the article is the emergence of something called a paradigm. And a paradigm is an online blog post, a collection of them, where the people who judge you at high school debates, that same Saturday morning where you get together, they 
put out statements that students read before the round to prepare for the debate. Now, paradigms 10 years ago were very different. A paradigm might say something like, I don't want you to speak 250 words a minute. I'd like you to speak at a more measured pace. They might say, I like primary source evidence over secondary. They may say, I prefer students to spend a lot of time explaining their impacts, in essence, explaining why their argument matters. Something changed with these paradigms. They became riddled with political and ideological statements. I'll I'll read you one here. This is what a student would read before a debate round when they'd have a debate on a number of different important issues. They would read, and this is from from the article. It says, quote, before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist-Leninist Maoist. I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door when I'm judging. I will no longer evaluate and thus ever vote for rightist, capitalist, imperialist positions and arguments. Examples of these include capitalism good, neoliberalism good, Zionism or normalizing Israel, colonialism, U.S. white fascist policing. So that sophomore who's competing that Saturday morning, before she goes into the room, she's told what types of arguments she can't make. And in essence, she has to conform to win the judge's ballot. From a very high level view, don't you try to win a debate in front of the audience that has presented itself to you to be convinced? You do. You absolutely do. And there has to be some level of adaptation. You see that on the campaign trail, right? When Barack Obama was campaigning on the South side of Chicago, the way he would present certain ideas, the way he would communicate would be very different if he were in Des Moines, Iowa, or in Manchester, New Hampshire. What I would say is this, paradigms originally designed where you had procedural expectations. Don't speak a mile a minute. Don't bully your opponent, be respectful, be civil. That's perfectly, perfectly fair game. But the idea that the judge makes the round about them, makes the round about, I'm a Marxist, therefore I don't want to hear any arguments about capitalism being good, what that does is not just hurt that student and their ability to have a conversation to present ideas outside of the norm, but it affects the entirety of the debate scene because now you're creating an echo chamber where certain ideas aren't really allowed and in essence, students aren't able to have their views challenged. You know, if you if you can never bring up the fact that capitalism has saved people from poverty in sub-Saharan Africa, then you can never truly have your views challenged, even if you believe that capitalism is a force for bad. So it's really about creating a forum where certain ideas are not rewarded not because they're on their merit. Look, we can have a debate, Caleb, about whether capitalism is good or bad or whether policing in the US is an instrument for good or bad, and that's fine. But you can't have a judge come in and say, it doesn't matter what evidence, what logic, what rhetoric you use. Even if you win the debate on paper, I will never vote for an argument on why capitalism is good or why the police are good. How rare is that? Like I said, I'm not super familiar with the ins and outs of competitive debate, but how rare is it for somebody to walk into a room as a judge and say, if these are the kinds of arguments you're prepared to make, you've lost already. There's no chance for you to win. If you look at it, numerator over denominator, Tab Room says they have, which is hosted by the National Speech and Debate Association, they say they have 47,000 paradigms. Now, that number doesn't really tell you the full story because how many of those judges are regular judges 
The difference between the judge that I just brought up is that this particular judge was the 2019 national debate champion in college debate, has judged hundreds of rounds of debate, hundreds of students over just the last couple of years. So it's not an even thing. What I would say is this, Caleb, is that the number really doesn't matter. What matters is the general atmosphere. When you look at government censorship in communist China, we don't say, well, government censors, the people who actually go on sites like WeChat or QQ and shut down comments or shut down dissent about Xinjiang or about capitalism or about Chinese influence, they represent the smallest minority of the Chinese population, yet they wield unbelievable influence. So paradigms are one way, just one of many ways to measure what types of arguments can be made. There's a reason why in semifinal, quarterfinal, final rounds of big national speech and debate association tournaments, you don't see arguments on capitalism being good or defending Israel or defending the police. So paradigms are one way to measure what has become really this two-sided debate in high school debate. One side is moderate left, one side is left wing. That is sort of the range of arguments that are allowed these days. And when I say allowed, nobody's going to arrest you or kick you out of the tournament or disqualify you. But at the end of the day, it is a competition. And the arguments that win are in effect the arguments that are allowed because students have one or one of two choices here. They can conform to not just the, the particular judge, but the general atmosphere which limits the number of arguments. They can conform to that and adjust their arguments accordingly, or they can simply drop out of high school debate entirely. And that further entrenches the echo chamber where certain ideas are just not welcome. And I think that's really the issue here is that at a time of great division in this country, recent Axios Ipsos poll found that 70% of young Democrats would not be friends with a young Republican. 30% of young Republicans said the same about young Democrats. Growing up, Caleb, I'm sure, same for you as it was for me, didn't matter. Didn't matter who you voted for, who you supported. And this just further exacerbates that issue by keeping those ideas out of the public square. For judges or for the people who select the judges, how do those people tell judges you need to be able to set aside your ideological commitments for the purpose of evaluating the quality of an argument? That's hard to separate. You know, it's hard to separate an ideological commitment that you may have from the substantive evidence presented for an argument. That's right. This is, you know, a, a lot of people, most people supported the article and validated the reporting, coaches, students, parents who had seen this firsthand. But the idea that a judge, that for debate to not be like this, a judge needs to truly be unbiased and there's no such thing as being unbiased, that's not true, right? Of course there's no such thing as being unbiased. This is not a question of bias. This is a question of fairness. This is a question of fairness for the students. And if you look at the way the National Speech and Debate Association responded to the article after it came out, when we, in the article, brought up specific examples, another one here is a judge 
there's a, something called disclosing, disclosure policy in high school debate, where before the round, the teams could get together and say, I want to show you my research, show me your research. The idea is to build transparency. So if we have time with each other's evidence, we can have a higher level, higher quality debate. Well, this one judge who's judged in just the last couple of years, 169 debate rounds, 340 students, the top national tournaments, she tells students in her paradigms, quote, this is a racial slur, the N-word don't have to disclose to you, but you have to disclose to the N-word. That's clear-cut racial discrimination that one race gets a privilege that is denied to another. And the NSDA, when we gave them all of this, both before the article asked for comment, afterward when it was published, they had a two-page statement. Nowhere in they nowhere in there did they dismiss, condemn, or discipline the judges. I think that's part of it, is that it's not just about the rules that you have on paper, the rules du jour, but it is in turn how you enforce those rules when you get these types of infractions, because that sets precedence for how other judges will behave. The ultimate way to fix this problem, I think, is to employ a citizen-judge model, which is instead of drawing on former high school debaters who were judged on these standards not too long ago, who are now judging debate tournaments, and it creates this vicious cycle, is to actually pull from the community, go to first responders, go to faith-based leaders, go to local elected officials, your comptrollers, your civic leaders, your state representatives, your law enforcement, armed forces, this wide swath of the population that's going to represent a diversity of viewpoints, have them come judge the debates. That's what we've done at Incubate Debate, which is a nonprofit that I started. It's the largest debate league now in Florida. It's completely no cost. Of course, we train the judges and we tell them it's about the argument, it's about the bias. But then again, so does the NSDA, right? The NSDA's policy, which I pointed out in the article, is that you are to judge the round in front of you and leave bias out of it. But when someone comes along and presents incontrovertible evidence of this bias and they don't take action and discipline those judges, then they're really not serious about it. So part of it is to diversify the judge pool. And the other part of it is when these infractions clear cut in their own words, when they are admitting their bias, they have to be disciplined to ensure that this is really an activity that at the end of the day is educational, right? Debate for me was, okay, you believe something? Back it up. Back it up with fact. Defend your view. If you can't, then you really ought to rethink what you believe. And if students are being told that they don't have to defend against capitalism positive or police positive arguments, then that no longer becomes an educational activity for kids. Is there a platonic ideal for a debate judge? Yes, there is. And I bring up a couple of them in the article, actually. Henry Smith, who is a former West Point debater, he tells students, unlike the Marxist-Leninist-Maoist, he tells students in his paradigm to focus on clarity over speed and remind them that every argument should explain how they win the debate. There's no room for political ideological statements in a paradigm because then they're going to shape the debate. I agree with you wholeheartedly when you said at the beginning, well, shouldn't they adapt to the audience? Absolutely. But they shouldn't feel like they can't make certain arguments that will be dismissed out of hand, not because they lack merit, not because they lack evidence, but simply because they're just not the judge is not wanting to hear that. There was one case of a young girl who came forward to Fox News after the article came out, and she was told by an NSDA judge before the round, it was a topic was President Biden's foreign policy track record. She was told not to bring up President Trump 
before the debate. And we're going to have a, a conversation about Joe Biden's track record in foreign policy, whether that's in the Middle East, Ukraine, Asia Pacific. We ought to be able to compare that to something. And so what, what, what that judge was doing is she was limiting the the degree of educational value and insight that that debater wanted to share, that's not pro-education. That really is censorship. That's silencing arguments. And for whatever reason she had to do it, it's just not appropriate. I mean, he was the president of the United States for four years. Foreign policy, like a lot of policy arenas, does not exist in a vacuum. History Correct. didn't begin on January 20th when you're sworn in. There, There is continuity Correct. that occurs and it's perfectly relevant to discuss that. And and so I guess that your concern is that debaters are placed at an enormous disadvantage just by virtue of having to debate one side of an issue. That's right. And one further example of this one-sided issue is the National Speech and Debate Association. The, the paradigms were part of it, but let's talk about some other evidence, incontrovertible evidence on why this bias exists. And by the way, they're not calling themselves the Young High School Democrats Association. If they were calling themselves that, none of this would really be a problem because kids would know what they're signing up for. But this is the Trojan horse here, Caleb. On the outside, yeah, we're for free speech. We're for diversity of views. We want kids' ideas to be challenged. We want to breed critical thinking. And then when they get through the gate and jump out, it's a totally different story. Look at, look at what this judge says to students in the paradigm before the round. She says, quote, if you are white, don't run arguments that primarily affect people of color. These arguments should belong to the communities they affect, end quote. What does that mean for your listeners? It means that a white student, a white girl from Kentucky, better not talk about the senseless violence that's wreaking havoc in places like Baltimore and Chicago. That's antithetical to what it means to be an American. You think about Barack Obama's speech 2004 before the Democratic National Convention. He brings us that, this idea that if you know there's a child on the south side of Chicago that can't read, that matters to him even if it's not his own kid. This idea of e pluribus unum, out of many one, we need to be taught, and that's how debate was for me in high school, it was for a lot of people, is you got to care and learn about issues that affect people different from you. And when students are being shot down before the round that says, if you are X race, don't talk about how this affects Y race, that is blocking that kind of empathy and solidarity and unity that we need to do to have to come together as a country. Well, it's also dehumanizing, right? It is dehumanizing. <laughs> because you're, you're essentially asking people, uh, you're not allowed to care about problems that uh, largely affect some other group of humans. That's right. That's right. Incubate Debate, you mentioned the group that you had launched. Um, what kind of throughput are you having within debate circles in the U.S.? Well, you know, I grew up in Florida. I live in Florida. We're seeing a lot of success there. A lot of coaches and a lot of students who had originally signed up for the NSDA style of debate now coming over to Incubate. Because for us, we don't tell you which ideas are right and wrong. We frame the topics in a way where both sides can have an even shot. A past NSDA topic, we debated recently affirmative action, but a past NSDA topic did as well. But here's how the topic was worded. How has affirmative action 
benefited black Americans? How has affirmative action benefited black Americans? Students. So it's classic begging the question. Begging the question, leading question where the students are not really allowed to challenge the premise. It's a non-negotiable idea that affirmative action is good, right? We're not going to debate that. We're just going to debate essentially how good is it? How marvelous? How excellent is this idea? At a time, by the way, that of course, you know, we're going to get a big decision here from the court about the future of this policy. So the real world is debating issues, transgender, so-called healthcare, the issue of the Second Amendment, right? Gun policy, this issue, of course, of affirmative action, highly divisive issues where National Speech and Debate Association doesn't want to talk about them because we're not seeing them on their topic lists, even though that Americans are talking about them at record rates. So incubate debate, what do we do? Well, we're the only no-cost debate league in the country. We've got no-cost tournaments. We don't require students to bring along parents to judge or to hire judges. We provide those judges. Those judges represent the, all parts of the population, right? So you're going to have your faith-based leaders. You're going to have your local law enforcement, local law professors, college professors come out and judge. Judges have to come to a unanimous decision at the end of the round on the ranking of the students who got first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And then finally, we provide a research packet to students that are going to include really great high-quality evidence on both sides of the debate. And that debate, that topic, is something that's actually fair, that isn't a leading question where students can really have a fair shot to argue both sides of the debate. When I was in high school, you remind me, there were these books called Opposing Viewpoints. And I just I found them enormously fascinating because these were essentially op-eds for sort of clear-cut different sides of an issue. I'm happy to say one of those books, I found an article by Doug Bendow, who uh, is now one of my colleagues at the Cato Institute. And I feel like there's an enormous appetite for young people not to be talked down to and not to be told in no uncertain terms, as some of these debate judges that you identify have, to simply dismiss out of hand the things that those people believe and the evidence that underlies those opinions that they have. It, it feels like, and I could be wrong, that young people don't want to be treated that way. <laughs> they don't. They really, really don't. The, the intentions here, they probably think, are sound. Let's create a safe space. The idea that we're going to debate so-called transgender healthcare would not be affirming to those students in our community, therefore we can't debate it. The idea that we're going to debate abortion, no, 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 that's a settled issue. That's non-negotiable. Abortion access is good. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad, but we ought to be able to have a debate about that because when these kids go off into the real world and they have this idea that I've been taught this certain thing and anybody who disagrees with me is a violent fascist who is anti-democracy, that tears at the seams of this country. And we need to have more unsafe, politically divisive conversations. That's how high school debate used to be. That's the high school debate that Justice Gorsuch knew when he won the national debate championship in 1982. That's the one that Senator Warren knew or Justice Alito or Justice Jackson, is you got to be able to have awkward conversations to bring the people of this country together, young people especially, Caleb, because that's where we're seeing the greatest division. Again, 70% of young Democrats, 30% of young Republicans do not 
do not want to be friends with someone of another of the other political party. That should be 0%. And it can be 0% if we actually get to sit down and realize, hey, wait, the other side is not all that bad. And I think both the left and the right is guilty of this, right? You, you get the right saying the crazy Marxists and, and all of this. And then on the, on the left, you get the crazy fascists in all of this. And it's, it's dehumanizing, it's demonizing, it's divisive. And for the future of this country, we've got to be able to bring people together. You mentioned safe spaces, and I am a supporter of safe spaces, but there are different kinds of safe spaces. Uh, Jane Coaston, who used to host The Argument podcast at the New York Times. She and I had a conversation at Cato's Sphere Summit, which is a program for teachers to help them educate their students broadly and show their students more respect or as much respect as we possibly can show to young people. And she made a really interesting point, which was when you're discussing difficult, divisive topics, there should be safe spaces for that too. And to make a space safe for debating topics means throwing out some ideological commitments, at least for the purposes of evaluating the quality of the arguments presented, for having a straightforward discussion, an honest, respectful discussion about a topic, and that that classrooms and, by extension, debate as a competitive event ought to be that safe space to discuss very difficult ideas. That's right. And we're, we're using the language to turn things around. And I, I agree with you. Every viewpoint, as long as it's respectful, right? And again, these things are highly, highly subjective, right? But as long as you're having a civil conversation where you can disagree agreeably, that should be welcome. I'll give you one example, Caleb. At Incubate Debate, we had a topic last year the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. All of our students are from Florida. At our state championship tournament in May of 2022, one of the topics was Governor DeSantis's parental rights and education bill. That topic, as usual, comes out about two months before the tournament. And I have never had more students and coaches and parents blow up my phone ever in protest over this topic. And the reason why they were protesting is because in their mind, there was only one side to this debate, which is it's homophobic, it's fascist, and it's going to lead to the killing of people. It's going to lead to the destruction of, of everything, essentially, in their mind. And I said to them, I said, well, look, at Incubate Debate, we don't force students to pick sides. So here's what we'll do. We're going to send out a research packet. That was really the genesis of having to push out a research packet with arguments on both sides, including, by the way, the text of the bill, which is the seven-page bill, which the vast majority of students had not even read. And as always, we don't tell you what side to go on. If the debate ends up being 90-10, 90% of the people against this so-called don't say gay bill, that's so be it. That's fine. We're never going to force you to say something you don't believe in. That's how we also differ from the other debate leagues like the NSDA. Well, when it came time two months later where they had read the research packet, they had done all the work, again, they chose what side they were on. I thought best case scenario, it would be 90-10. It was the first round of the tournament. Caleb, it was 50-50 right down the middle. When you tell students to actually look at the evidence, present that evidence to them, and 
I personally, I'm a supporter of the bill. I believe in parental rights and education. I believe that parents have the utmost role there, but that's not about this debate. It's about giving them the resources, giving them arguments on both sides, giving them research and opinion and commentary on both sides, not forcing one side or the other to do something. But when they actually sat down and read the bill, first and foremost, a lot of students just said their mind was changed immediately when they read the bill. And then when they read some of the some of the op-eds that were out and some of the analysis, they realized that there was they maybe had a claim to their argument, but no warrant, no evidence to back that up. And that's, I think, a really good example of one of the most divisive pieces of state legislation we've seen in a very long time, where simply the free flow of information, we're nonpartisan, we don't take a side on these topics, but just putting that information out there, having and facilitating that debate in the first place, that can bring people together. And I'll tell you, the students who are on both sides of that debate they didn't come out, and even if they disagreed with each other, afterward, they had lunch together, they went to the next round, which was on Russia, they had a great debate, their friends and all of that. So the idea wasn't, let's change the minds of the students. No, let's present them the information. And if so be it, it was still 90-10 afterward, that's fine. But we need to be able to understand what we're actually debating instead of listening to MSNBC or Twitter headlines, which oftentimes distort the facts. And same is true on the other side as well. James Fishback is the founder of Incubate Debate. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.